بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد فإن أحسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الحدي حدي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وإن شر الأمور محتثاتها وكل محتثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار uh, So today we finish the final uh, short lecture uh, that Sheikh Ubaid gave رحمه الله uh, at the end which is at the end of this book and it's our final section inshallah and it is the title Sharh Hadith Mathalul Mu'min Mathalul Mu'min Alladhi Yaqra'ul Qur'an So this is an explanation of the Hadith in which the Messenger of Allah gave the similitude, the likeness, the similitude of different categories of people. Uh, those, to, those who ascribe to Islam uh, from the believers and the hypocrites and he gave the similitude of four types of people in relation to reading the Qur'an and the absence of reading the Qur'an. And he gave a similitude in terms of like a type of fruit uh, to which we can, we can relate to. So the Shaykh, after praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and sending salat and salam upon our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu he then goes on to mention the actual hadith and Abi Musa al-Ash'ari so Abu Musa al-Ash'ari is the narrator anhu. he said قال, he said the messenger of Allah he said مثل المؤمن الذي يقرأ القرآن كمثل الأترجه ريحها طيب وطعمها طيب the similitude of the believer who recites the Qur'an is like the citrus fruit. The citrus fruit. Its fragrance is good and its taste is good. Then he said, وَمَثَلُ الْمُؤْمِنِ الَّذِي لَا يَقْرَأُ الْقُرْآنِ كَمَثَلِ الْتَمْرَةِ كَمَثَلِ الْتَمْرَةِ لَا رِيحَ لَهَا and the similitude of the believer who does not recite the Quran is like the date. It has no fragrance. It has no fragrance. But its taste is sweet. Its taste is sweet. Then he said, وَمَثَلُ الْمُنَافِقِ الذي يقرأ القرآن مثل الريحانة ريحها طيب وطعمها مر So he said and the similitude of the hypocrite who recites the Quran is like like the basil the basil uh, herb the basil its fragrance is good but its taste is bitter. 
And then he said, وَمَثُلُ الْمُنَافِقِ الَّذِي لَا يَقْرَأُ الْقُرْآنِ كَمَثَلِ الْحَنْظَلَةِ لَيْسَ لَهَا رِيحٌ وَطَعْمُهَا مُرٌ And the similitude of the hypocrite who does not recite the Qur'an is like, there's a word here, الحنظلة, uh, this is, refers to a, a, a very bitter type of citrus fruit. It can also refer to a bitter cucumber or a bitter god. There's different names. Uh, so he said about it that it, uh, it doesn't have any fragrance and its taste is, is bitter, very bitter. So this hadith is reported by Al-Bukhari and Muslim. And so the Shaykh, rahimahullah, begins his explanation by saying that this hadith explains to us the categories of the mukallafin, aqsamul mukallafin, those who responded to Islam. So meaning, a mukallaf is the one who responds to Islam, meaning he... Uh, on the surface, he, he displays Iman, and so he responds to the call of the Messenger of Allah And so they are divided into different categories. So as you saw clearly, there is the believer, the mu'min, and there is the munafiq, the hypocrite. And so these are the ones, so this is the categorization of those who ascribe to Islam. As you see at the, at the beginning of the Quran, in Surah Al-Baqarah, you have the believers and their qualities who believe in the unseen and um, some of their uh, attributes and actions. And then you have the disbelievers and then you have the hypocrites and many of their traits and qualities described in a bit more detail. So you have the believer and the hypocrite. And so excluded from this obviously are those who did not respond to Islam and they are the people of disbelief, the people who are open in their disbelief, from whom kufr is inward and also outward and it is apparent. So we can clearly see these are the disbelievers of their various categories and types. This one is, is a Yahudi, this one is a Nasrani, this one is a, is a Hindu, this one is an atheist. Very clear, very, very apparent. Um, so the Sheikh goes on to say that within this hadith is also an indication that the religions other than Islam, they are not, as he said, the heavenly religions. You've heard this term, right? The heavenly religions. Or you've heard, as others might say, uh, the Abrahamic faiths or the Abrahamic religions, right? So there's no, there's no such thing as, as this, whether we are referring to Yahudiyyah, <coughs> Yahudiyyah, or Nasraniyyah, or Majusiyyah, or Mushrikiyyah, whether we are referring to the Jews or the Christians <coughs> or the fire worshippers, the Persian fire worshippers, or the idolaters, the polytheists of various types, uh, there's no such thing as heavenly religions or Abrahamic religions. And the Sheikh mentions how he has repeated this in many of his lessons, in many places. And um, whoever wants to 
refer to that, can go and refer to you know, uh, those other lectures. But while we are on this point and while the Sheikh mentioned this point, uh, we hear these days, very sadly, this term being used, the Abrahamic religions or the Abrahamic house of worship. Very, very sadly, we hear it from certain quarters. And this is pure falsehood. Uh, the deen of Ibrahim is, 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 is Islam. We see very clearly in the Quran, Allah Zujal, he said, مَا كَانَ Ibrahim, مَا كَانَ إِبْرَاهِيمُ يَهُودِيًا وَلَا نَصْرَانِيًّا Ibrahim al-Islam was neither a Jew nor a Christian. وَلَكِنْ كَانَ حَنِيفًا مُسْلِمًا وَمَا كَانَ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ But he was a Hanif. Hanif meaning one who is inclined to the truth, one who inclines to worship Allah alone and one who swerves away from others besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the meaning of Hanif. And he was a Muslim, one who submits with Islam to Allah, and he was not of the polytheists. And then the ayah continues to say that those who are most worthy, nas bi Ibrahim, the most worthy of people uh, to be associated with Ibrahim, are the ones who actually follow him. And this Prophet, and those who believe. And, you know, uh, they are the ones who are the, the believers. They are the ones who are the, who are the uh, believers. Or Allah is the wali of the, of the believers. Allah is the ally of the believers. So in this ayah, it's very, very clear that Ibrahim was not a Jew nor a Christian. And it's impossible for him to be a Jew or a Christian because these are altered religions which developed and occurred you know, 1,500 uh, years after him, uh, 2,000 years after him because Ibrahim was roughly around the year, you know, the, the, the era or the period of around 2,000 1900 BC um, and from him came Ismail and Ishaq and from Ishaq came Yaqub who is called Israel the slave of Allah and from him came the Bani Israel the 12, ti the 12 tribes uh, of Israel and they went to uh, Misr and they remained there for many generations and then Fir'aun appeared as a tyrant and he enslaved the Bani Israel. Allah sent Musa salam to take Bani Israel out from captivity. While they were in captivity, they picked up many, many evil habits uh, of idol worship and various other traits. And those traits very sadly remained with them. And when they were taken out and they were delivered and taken to uh, you know, the, 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 the place, uh, they began to manifest many of these evil qualities. And we see these are mentioned in the Quran, uh, worshipping the calf, uh, abusing Musa salam, uh, being ungrateful, many, many things, disbelieving in the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so these traits remained among them uh, till the time of Dawood salam. Uh, they were cursed upon his tongue, as mentioned in, in the Quran, and likewise upon the tongue of Isa alayhi salam. And then the, the kingdoms that they had after 
Dawood and Suleiman, a few centuries after, they were disbanded, they were conquered, they were invaded as punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by uh, the Persians and then various other nations. Um, so their state was, was disbanded uh, until they were taken in captivity to Babylon around the year 6, 600, 570 BC. Uh, so they're taken out from Jerusalem and they resided there. Um, then they returned back to Jerusalem and then you know, after the sending of Isa alayhi salam, um, uh, because of, of their disbelief, Jerusalem was eventually sacked and they were sent forth from that place. Um, and they've been living like that ever since. So this deen called Yahudiyyah, Yahudiyyah was unknown in the time of Ibrahim alayhi salam, Yaqub alayhi salam, Musa alayhi salam, Suleiman, Dawood uh, and Suleiman alayhi salam. This was something that developed afterwards around 570, 550 uh, BC. And this is when they began to uh, contend with the Torah and develop what eventually became the Talmud. Talmud meaning just the opinions the uh, you know opinions of of, the, of 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 their rabbis, by which they tried to subvert and undermine the actual commands of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala in the Torah, to 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 make halal what is haram, to make haram what is halal, and to find all these devices and different workarounds, right? And so the opinions, this eventually became known as the Talmud, and this Talmud, uh, or, or the idea or the, or the opinions. Uh, when Isa salam was sent, he was sent to uh, purify the Torah from, from these innovations and from the altering of the law. And after Isa salam, they continued upon this and then eventually they finally managed to put into writing and compile all of these you know, uh, opinions that undermine the actual Torah and it became known as the Babylonian Talmud. And it was finally committed in writing some say 500, 600, uh, you know, in the Christian era. Uh, and others from the Jews say it was 800. Meaning that after Islam, the second, in the second century of Islam, the actual Talmud as, as we have it today in its written form, that's when it was actually put and compiled into actual uh, written form. So this deen here is not the deen of Ibrahim salam, nor Musa salam, nor uh, Dawood or Suleiman. Uh, it is an innovated religion and it is a religion based upon uh, ethnicity, nationalism and you know, doctoring of the text and making all of these claims that somehow uh, that they are chosen and have been granted you know, a piece of land. All of these are distortions and fabrications upon which their religion is, is built upon. They do not have the Torah of Musa salam. That was lost a long, long, long time ago by their own admission. Right? They had to reconstruct what they think to be the Torah. And the Muslim scholars like Ibn Hazm, rahimahullah, have done a tremendous job in refuting and exposing the lies of those who call themselves Yahud. Yahud. So, uh, so, so that is an altered religion, and also the the, Bani, the, the Yahud 
are just one small tribe amongst whom there are a mixture of different nations as well right there are idumeans there are edomites there are different it's like it's not like a, some pure you know genetics or race as they claim these are all lies and fabrications they are just one small part of the bani israel there's other tribes as well and they are just one small part of those whom you call semites because semites being many different nations so therefore this claim that you that you have some exclusive right to the term semite it is false and it is rejected and in any case when you were sent in the diaspora these this group of people traveled into different places through through you know through through rome through spain and eventually found themselves in different places up up there in poland and the ukraine intermarrying with different uh, people until any alleged semite connection or blood i mean the word semite even it, it that, that's problematic because originally it referred to a language not to ethnicity not to a race this division was made on the basis of language it has nothing to do with you know but let, let's just say for argument's sake the ref refers to the offspring of sham the son of nuh in any case there's no trace from your appearance of any semite uh, appearance you are polish you are german you are ukrainian right you are lithuanian you are latvian you are russian it's you can see clearly in your appearance that this is what the case is and as for the actual semites then you can go to the jewish encyclopedia you can go to the actual writings of the jews themselves and you will see very clearly and explicitly they say that the purest group of semites present today are the arabs because the arabs didn't really especially the ones who are in the peninsula the arabian peninsula because they didn't really migrate out and they retained all of their characteristics in terms of the language in terms of the you know all the other cultural and whatever elements they are the purest race of semites present today and that's that's that, that's huck it's written in their books so th there's many things going on here when we understand that the deen of the yahud is built upon ethno nationalism it's like a nationalistic identity right that itself is false because you have you know as as we said you have uh, a russian jew a ukrainian jew you have a sephardic jew you have a mizrahi jew you have a north african jew you have a chinese kaifeng jew you have and you put them all side by side next to each other you have an ethiopian jew this one is very dark this one over here from america somewhere in texas he's blonde haired blue eyed this one is a chinese this one is uh you know european red hair whatever this is just a mockery i mean who are you trying to fool that somehow this is based upon race right this is just pure mockery and making fools of people this is not a race this is an ideology it's a religion and an ideology an ethno nationalistic ideology 
which was written in the Talmud, has nothing to do with the religion of Musa alayhi salam, has nothing to do with Israel himself, Ya'qub alayhi salam, has nothing to do with Ibrahim alayhi salam or Ishaq, has no connection whatsoever. The only people who have that connection to Ibrahim alayhi salam and Ya'qub and Ishaq and Ismail are the people of Islam, as Allah says in the Quran. Inna awla nas bi Ibrahim. Indeed, the, the most worthy of people with, uh, of association with Ibrahim are the ones who followed him. And what is his religion? His religion is Tawheed, Hanifiyyah, Islam. As for the deen of the Yahud, that is, it is, it is um, engrossed in shirk of the worst type. Of the worst type. You read what they say in the Talmud of exaggeration and lies which they fabricated that somehow the whole universe was created just for the benefit of the Yahud. Everything in the universe, Allah created it in order to serve and benefit the Yahud. And that the Yahud, each individual Yahudi, is an actual piece, an actual piece of the God that they claim to believe in. And that he is worthy of being worshipped. And the Christians, even though they worshipped one Jew as they claim, which is Isa alayhi salam, and he was not a Yahudi, they should rather be worshipping every Jew. Because if you're going to worship one Jew according to them, then why don't you worship every Jew? And when their Messiah comes at the end times, then everybody will want to worship a Jew. These are their lies and their fabrications which they invented and wrote in their books. What has this got to do with Ibrahim alayhi salam? What has this got to do with Ya'qub al-Islam? Absolutely nothing. So these lies, we, we reject them, we have to reject them, and we make it clear that this is not uh, an Abrahamic faith or a heavenly religion. This is a fabrication. Fabrication. And it is very, very sad, as, as we said, that amongst the, the Muslim nation, this call should appear of the Abrahamic faiths. Uh, this Anyone who believes that these are legitimate ways to Allah, this is taqdeeb of the Qur'an. It's taqdeeb of the Qur'an because Allah said it very explicitly here. That there's only one way to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is deen of Islam, that's the way of Ibrahim al-Islam and these others, they are altered, fabricated, abrogated religions. You cannot reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by way of these altered uh, religions. So, on that basis, um, you know, as the scholars have explained, as Sheikh Obeid mentioned here, and many of the scholars have spoken about this, Sheikh Al-Fawzan, uh, Sheikh Bin Baz, Rahimullah, uh, Sheikh Al-Bani, Rahimullah, uh, Sheikh Rabi' Hafizahullah, all have spoken and rejected this uh, falsehood. And as we said, uh, we, 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 we do not accept this call, no matter whom it comes from, no matter which direction it comes from. And this leads us really to the point, uh, another point while we are at it, we can address this point as well, is that we, we see often many of the people of innovation and misguidance, they try to claim that the people of the sunnah, they follow everything and they demand absolute obedience to the rulers of the Muslims and in what they say and what they do. And this is, this, is, this is a blatant falsehood. Everybody knows. And this is something that we teach from the books of Creed that obedience to the ruler is in what is ma'roof. 
is only in what only in what is ma'roof. No one has ever said from the scholars of Sunnah, whether present today or in the past, that obedience to the ruler is an absolute, unqualified obedience in every single thing. And we have these liars and fabricators who have no shame in lying upon the people of the Sunnah, whom they call madkhalis as a, as a derogatory, derogatory term. And they claim that they demand absolute obedience to everything the ruler says and does. This is false. This is false. Uh, Sheikh Rabi himself, you can find in his cassettes, in his writings, saying that we free ourselves from the mistakes or from the errors or from the misguidances of the rulers. It's not permissible to ever believe and accept them ever. And he mentions the hadith in this regard, uh, that you will see things from, from the rulers. And so whoever rejects, then he will be safe. And whoever is pleased and follows then, meaning he will be, he will, he will be harmed. Right? So this is pure falsehood. Our position towards the rulers is in moderation between three groups. The first are the murji'ah, about whom Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said that from their way is absolute obedience to the ruler in everything. Right? It's ta'ah mutlaqah. They obey in everything. And this is not correct. This is not correct. So, we do not follow the way of the murji'ah, meaning that we make obedience only in what is ma'roof. And as for what is munkar and rejected, then obviously we reject it with our hearts and we explain its opposition to the sharia with our tongues. And as for giving advice and correction of the ruler, then that has a very specific methodology in the sunnah which we follow. And in that methodology, we differ from the khawarij because the khawarij, they have a different approach and that is to uh, break away from the main body of the Muslims and to openly revile and to incite the people against the ruler. And this leads to uh, civil strife and internal weakness within the nation. Right? So the, there are actual wisdoms in all of these positions. So we're not like the murji'ah, nor are we like the khawarij, nor are we like the rafida, those who believe that the rulers are infallible and they can never ever make a mistake and that they are to be venerated and, and glorified like the rafida do with, with, their, with, with their imams and you know, things like that. So all of these innovations, we are free from those innovations of the murji'ah, of the khawarij, of the rafida, and we are in the middle holding on to the sunnah. And so all of these are, are, are lies. We, we do not accept everything that comes from the, from, from the rulers, uh, but we, obviously they are, they, are, they are the rulers, they are the ulil amr, they are the ones who are in charge, and we have to obey in whatever is ma'roof, and uh, we, follow, we follow the sunnah in that regard. So these are all false accusations. Uh, and anyone who reads uh, the kalam of, of the great Salafi scholars of this era, Sheikh bin Ba, Sheikh al-Bani, uh, Sheikh al-Fawzan, Sheikh Nuthaymeen, uh, Sheikh uh, Ahmed al-Najmi, Sheikh al-Ghudiyan, Sheikh al-Rabi', Sheikh Ubaid, will find that this is exactly what they say. And so the, the, these are lies which are being spread by, by people of uh, hatred, uh, they have murky backgrounds, 
uh, murky backgrounds in innovation and they cause this uh, confusion because they have no other way, because they have nothing to hold on to themselves. We have the rope of Allah, we hold on to it, uh, we teach it, we hold on to it. They have nothing really to hold on to apart from just rationalities and, you know, so that's why they spread these lies. Anyhow, moving on. So this is just an issue to do with uh, Abrahamic religions and, you know, things like that. Anyhow, the Sheikh moves on and he says that those who have responded to the call of Allah and his messenger, uh, they fall into four categories. And that's what this hadith mentions. So he says the first group, a son of al-awwal, that's mentioned in this hadith, he says, this one is the happiest of all of the groups. And it has the loftiest station and the noblest approach. It, it, it is... It is you know, following in the path of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And they are the people of Iman, who have Iman inwardly and outwardly. And these people, our Prophet sallallahu has likened them or resembled them to, um, you know, he's given them a certain uh, similitude. And he goes on to say that they have been likened to a citrus fruit. And the Shaykh goes on to, to say how the Messenger of Islam has, has been given the concise speech. Right? So he's given concise speech. He, he gives similitudes or he uses simple words or a few words in which there is a great depth of meaning. So this hadith is obviously from, from, from that, from the Juwami al-Kalim. And he said in this hadith that they are like the citrus fruit. And this is, as you know, a type of fruit. The Sheikh says that you could find it in Medina uh, before you could, not sure now. And then he says, what's the angle of resemblance between the believer who recites the Quran and the citrus fruit? And he says, the angle is, first of all, that the citrus fruit, just by holding it, you can see the fragrance comes from the citrus fruit. You don't even have to put it to your nose. You just hold it. And even if you hold it in your hand and then you smell your hand, the fragrance will go on your hand and you can clearly smell the aroma of the fruit. Likewise, its taste is, is nice, it's good, it's wholesome. And so a believer with the Qur'an, when he recites the Qur'an, we see from him, as the Sheikh says, Right, so he has a good appearance and... You know, he does whatever, you know, he, he has, he's upon istiqama, upon whatever Allah has commanded. He does what Allah has commanded and he keeps away from what Allah has prohibited. And uh, in terms of inwardly, he is sincere to Allah and he's sincere in what he does, in what he does of commandments and what he keeps away of prohibitions. And he believes in whatever the messenger informed us of from his akhbar. So therefore, in, with his tongue, and with his heart, and with his limbs, with everything, essentially he is saying, I hear and I obey. Uh, this is the believer. Right? So, likewise, so just like the citrus fruit, it radiates, it, it, it gives off a, a, an aroma, and inwardly, likewise, on the inside, what's on the inside? It's fruit, wholesome, good, you know, pleasing, tasty, 
satisfying. Right? So this is like, like the believer. And then also, the Shaykh goes on to say that the benefit that this believer has is not restricted only in relation to the Quran or to himself, but he also benefits other people as well. He also benefits other people because he comes under the statement of the Messenger of Allah who said, man Quran The best of you is the one who learns the Quran and who teaches it. So this is the way of such a believer. Not only is all of this benefit restricted to himself, by virtue of him reciting the Quran, which means, uh, we will explain what this means shortly, uh, because he is a reciter of the Quran, he is also a teacher of the Quran. Now, what does it mean to recite the Quran or to learn the Quran? The Sheikh says, what, this question here, how, how is the learning of the Quran and the teaching of the Quran? He says, the answer <coughs> to this question is what has been re related by uh, Abu Abdurrahman al-Sullami radiallahu anhu who said uh, uh, who said that حَدَّثَنَا الَّذِينَ كَانُوا يُقْرِئُونَنَا الْقُرْآنِ Those who used to teach us the Quran would narrate to us such as Uthman ibn Affan and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and others وَغِرِهِمَا أَنَّهُمْ كَانُوا لَا يُجَاوِزُونَ عَشْرَ آيَاتٍ مِنْ فَمِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم that they would not exceed taking ten verses from the mouth of the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم حَتَّى يَتَّعَلَّمُوا مَعْنَاهَا وَالْعَمَلَ بِهَا until وَالْعَمَلِ بِهَا until they learnt its meaning and they acted upon it. And so the Shaykh says, فَتَفَطَّنُوا Pay attention, be, beware here, that until they learnt the meanings of these ten verses and they acted upon them. And قَالَ فَكَانُوا يَتَعَلَّمُونَ الْعِلْمِ وَالْعَمَلِ So Abu Abdurrahman, he said, so therefore, they used to learn the knowledge and they used to learn the action. Okay, so 10 verses at a time. So you take the ilm, which in this case is just the actual nas, the text of the Quran. And then they would see what amal, what action there is in these verses. And then they would proceed upon that as well. They would learn that as well and implement that. And then they would not move on to the next 10 verses until they had, they had mastered that. Here the Sheikh makes a point, which is that this narration here from uh, in relation to the sahaba is a refutation of the jama'atul tabligh because from the way of jama'atul tabligh uh, they, 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 they use like another text and they misunderstand this text so they take this hadith convey from me even if it is just one verse and then without them even having studied are having deeply rooted knowledge. They go out and they spend 40 days here, 40 days there, knowing nothing. They are not, they are not scholars, but they just get people out there to go because as they claim, you know, they, they have a similitude that Iman is like sugar in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, you know, in a tea or something. Now, unless you stir it, then you know, the, the, the sweet taste won't, won't come. 
So unless you go out and you go and travel and you move and you, you, know, you stir yourself and you move and you travel 40 days here, 40 days there, whatever, then you're not really going to taste the, the, the iman. So they go and knock on people's doors and they say, you must come with us for 40 days, you must come with us. And these are ignorant people, don't know anything. And they sit there and they open up uh, Tablighi Nisab, uh, which is a book full of uh, mistakes and errors and, and you know, exaggerated stories. And it has statements of, of, of like shirk and things like that. And they're not really acquiring knowledge. Right? This is not knowledge. This is not how you gain knowledge. And so this is different to the way of the Sahaba, which is to, to learn knowledge from its source and to learn what is in there of ilm and amal and to patiently proceed upon that for a long time till you become rooted in knowledge. When you become rooted in knowledge and you are worthy of being sent, like the Messenger of Allah Sallam, he sent, who did he send? He sent uh, Ibn Abbas or Mu'adh bin Jabal radiallahu anhu to the Yemen. Mu'adh bin Jabal was a scholar. A scholar, he was a scholar. He sent others, Ali bin Abi Talib, to do certain things such as to level graves and so on and so forth. Uh, Ali bin Abi Talib sent Ibn Abbas to debate with the Khawarij. Because he was a scholar of the Qur'an. Right? So you, you go out when you are a scholar or a proficient student. As for just going out there because you claim that unless, you know, the sugar stirred in the tea, then the sweet, you won't really taste the sweetness. And so just to travel here and then, and then sleep in mosques and eat from the, the pilau rice and the, the curries and whatever else. This is, this, is not, this, is not, this is not the way of the Sahaba. Uh, this is not... Seeking ilm and teaching ilm. Uh, this is something else. And in anyhow, the most they know is Tawheed al-Rububiyya. Uh, they don't really call to the Tawheed of the messengers because the Tawheed they believe in is Tawheed in Allah's Lordship. No one denies that Allah is the Lord, the Creator, the Provider, the Sustainer, the Giver of Life, the Taker of Life. No one denies this. The call is to Tawheed al-Uluhiyya. In any case, this after this narration, as the Sheikh says, is a, you know, a refutation of their methodology. It is a deficient methodology. And then he goes on to say that we see that the companions of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that they would uh, learn from their prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, al-ilm wal-amal, knowledge and action. Khayrukum man ta'allam al-Qur'an wa'allamah. The best of you is the one who would learn the Qur'an and teach it. And then they in turn, they teach the people uh, whatever they learned from the Prophet wasallam of the Qur'an, of action and of knowledge and action. And this indicates, as the Sheikh says, whoever wants to go in the field of da'wah and wants to call to Allah, and likewise, whether it is the imams of the masajid, you know, the imams of the masajid, and, uh, you know, who want to, teach the people fiqh, which is comprehension in the religion, then they have to add to their knowledge of the Qur'an what they find in the sunnah. It is the Qur'an and the sunnah. It's not just the Qur'an. And part and parcel of learning the Qur'an is the sunnah because the sunnah here to fassir al-Qur'an. The sunnah explains the Qur'an, as we see mentioned by Imam Ahmed. The sunnah explains the Qur'an. The sheikh wasn't to explain that the sunnah is also revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it, it, uh, it explains the Qur'an, it explains 
what is general and it restricts and qualifies what is absolute and it can also abrogate what is what sometimes you can abrogate what is in the Quran so without recourse to the Sunnah we cannot truly and really understand the Quran and its rulings and its meanings and we will go astray like you have those people the Quraniyun the people who believe only in the Quran this is a poison inserted into the Muslim Ummah by the people of disbelief uh, it, it was pushed in Egypt and likewise in India by the by the British uh, who put this uh, rationalism and then all of a sudden there appeared these people the Quraniyun you know in, in, in uh, uh, India and likewise in Egypt denying the Sunnah and this, this is great misguidance without the Sunnah then we cannot really truly understand the Quran so the Sheikh is saying here that it's not just when we say the Quran to learn the Quran then it cannot be learned except with the Sunnah they go hand in hand as they are both revelation the authentic Sunnah the authentic Hadith is revelation as well and so the Sheikh goes on to say that the people of, of the Sunnah they do not reject anything uh, whether it is coming the Sunnah or whether it is coming the Quran or whether the Sunnah is the only thing that mentions it and the Quran doesn't mention it they accept all of that together and you know this is this is what is meant by learning the Quran the Sheikh goes on to say after that that within this is a hadith uh, is, is the evidence in this hadith that it is desirable for the one to whom Allah has given the Quran and who's memorized the Quran that he um, you know that he that he maintain a recitation of the Quran especially if he's someone who uh, quickly forgets the Quran because the Quran is easy to forget so to maintain that recitation frequently um, especially because this lecture was given in Ramadan especially in the month of Ramadan um, and there are certain times there are certain places in which the recitation or in act or, or the act of worship becomes even greater and becomes magnified and so for example when you recite the Quran in Ramadan then it is greater than reciting the Quran at other times so this is the first category mentioned in the hadith it is the believer who is, is a believer inwardly and outwardly and he also recites the Quran meaning what does it mean recite the Quran meaning that he takes 10 verses he learns them and what's in them of knowledge and action and then he proceeds to the next 10 right and so he is a this is the meaning of tilawa tilawa isn't just to actually recite it means to like we said from the from the narration of um, Abu Abdurrahman Sulami. this is what it means and so this believer therefore he is like a citrus fruit outwardly this fragrance that benefits other people that reaches other people and inwardly there is the fruit, there is the pulp, there is the, the juice, there is like the wholesome, the goodness which one can taste and which one can benefit from. Which means inwardly that believer is wholesome and good. There, there is iman, there is ikhlas, there is tasdiq, uh, believing in the khabar of the Prophet ﷺ. All these things are present. So inwardly and outwardly, there's, it, it's wholesome. So there is the rih, there is the fragrance, and there is the taste the second group mentioned in the hadith al-mu'min alladhi la yaqra'u al-qur'an 
Right? So the one, the believer who does not recite the Quran. Now, what does this mean in the context of this hadith? It doesn't mean the believer who doesn't sit there and doesn't recite the Quran at all. Because remember, what is meant by reciting the Quran is al-ilm wal-amal. This is what is meant. Tilawa is as, again, going back to the narration of Abu Abdurrahman Sulami, it is to learn al-ilm wal-amal from the Quran, right? So that's the reciter of the Quran. So the believer who does not recite the Quran, meaning the one who does not learn it and then to act upon it and then to teach it. This is what is meant. He says, this is the believer in Allah. He's pleased with Allah as a Lord and with Islam as his religion and with Muhammad as his prophet. And he obviously worships his Lord by way of whatever Allah has made obligatory upon him. And he's sincere to Allah and he follows the sunnah of the Prophet And so this person who does all of that, then, you know, he resembles a date. A date. A date, when you hold it in your hand, you can't actually, there's no fragrance coming from the date. Right? Unlike the citrus fruit. The citrus fruit is obvious. The fragrance comes at you. But the date, you hold it in your hand and there isn't any real fragrance. Right? So he, obviously he's benefited from the Quran and, uh, but he doesn't have the ability to teach the Quran like the first group. Right? The believer who learns the ayat, who acts upon the ayat, who teaches the ayat and he benefits other people. But this person doesn't actually have that. Right? It doesn't mean that he's not actually reciting the Quran in terms of reading it. He reads it. But he doesn't have the ilm or the fiqh, as the Sheikh says, that you know, he doesn't have ahliyyah. He's not able to teach the people from that which Allah taught him. And he might have some ability, some small ability in some issues. Maybe he might tell his family to, you know, how to do wudu or how to encourage them to, to do this or to the other. But he isn't able to actually teach the people fiqh, meaning comprehension of the religion in all the various areas of the religion, in creed, in the halal and the haram, in, in the mu'amalat, in you know, uh, things of that nature. So therefore, his similitude, what is, is he like? He is like a date. And the date, even though there's no fragrance that you can, you know, that, that comes and you can smell it, Nevertheless, if you eat it, it is full of, of sweetness, full of goodness, because there is good in this, in this believer. Even if that good is largely and mostly restricted to himself. So this is, uh, and there's no, no fragrance to this, uh, to this date. So this now is the second group, a second uh, type mentioned in the, in the hadith. And the Sheikh then goes on to say, الثالث والرابع, the third and the fourth, نسأل الله أن يبعدهم أن يبعدهم عنا. We ask Allah Azawajal to make us distant from them and make us, uh, to, to make uh, them distant from us and us distant from them. Ameen. And he says, الثالث منافق يقرأ القرآن. Now the third type is the hypocrite who recites the Quran. The hypocrite who recites the Quran. So what is the hypocrite, the munafiq? The munafiq is when we, read, when we hear this word munafiq used in the texts, 
And it is mentioned without qualification, without qualification in the Quran and the Sunnah, then this means that it is a nifaq al-i'tiqadi. It is the hypocrisy in belief. So whenever we come across the word munafiq or munafiqeen in the Quran and the Sunnah, and we don't have any other indication, any pointer, any other further qualification, then it is always assumed, it is always the case that this is al-nifaq al-i'tiqadi. It is hypocrisy in belief. This is the person who proclaims Islam, manifests Islam, but he conceals disbelief. He conceals disbelief. And as the Sheikh goes on to explain, that you will therefore come to know that hypocrisy therefore is of two types. There is a hypocrisy which is i'tiqadi, it is hypocrisy in belief, and this is the one um, we've already explained, um, that the one who proclaims iman, but he conceals disbelief. Now in the time of the Messenger of Allah these people existed, they were hypocrites, and in general, when Islam is strong, and the people of, uh, of iman are strong, you see the hypocrites, they will conceal their hypocrisy. And whenever actions of hypocrisy emanate from them, they will quickly make excuses and they will find excuses to, to, lest they be exposed, right? Because, because of the strength of Islam and the clear distinction between the actions of the people of Iman and the actions of the people of hypocrisy. And that's why these affairs are mentioned in the Quran to contrast how the hypocrites were, how they would make excuses not to go on, on jihad and linger behind and things like that. These are not things. So in the times of strength, hypocrites truly go underground, right? And they, they remain concealed for the most part. And if you see actions, they will swear by Allah, they will use oaths as a shield for themselves, they will make a thousand excuses. We, and then this is, this is how they to continue uh, gaining the, the, the trust and the, not to raise any suspicion. However, when Iman is weak and the people of Iman are weak, then you see the hypocrites become more vocal and open. And in fact, this was even said, uh, there's a narration from Hudayf bin al-Yaman, that in the time of the Messenger of Islam, the hypocrite, hypocrisy was, you know, was concealed and now it, it's, you know, it's, it's open. That was in the time of Hudayfa, after the Messenger of Allah And so every time, every time the strength of Islam is not present, you see the hypocrites coming out openly and openly proclaiming their disbelief while at the same time claiming to be Muslim. And you see these people present today, you know, uh, you see them... Uh, coming out of Muslim countries like Yemen or, you know, Somalia, other places, and then they go to, you know, find refuge in Europe and they claim to be Muslim, but you see apparent, clear, explicit disbelief from their tongues, in which there is absolutely no doubt, and which without a doubt we can say that you, you, are, you are a hypocrite, a disbeliever, there's, there's not an ounce of Iman in you, because you are making open your hypocrisy. And then you're trying to confuse the Muslims by, 
you know, saying you are a Muslim and, you know, we Muslims need to change and, you know, so long as we stick to the Quran and stick to these, like you're trying to cast doubt in the hearts of the Muslims. It's very, it's very clear and apparent what you are doing. And then also you have uh, the, the uh, Yahud uh, from the Zionists and others. They actually have schools where they train these people, the Arabic language, and to, you know, and then to dispatch them to different parts in the Muslim nation, to the Gulf countries, to North Africa, to then uh, become part and parcel of certain movements and currents to basically mislead the Muslims. Uh, this is known from their way until even one of their great scholars known as Maimonides, Maimonides, Musa bin Maimun, uh, they call him, he's from the uh, scholars that is considered to be the great scholars amongst the Yahud. He used to be in North Africa uh, and from what the Muslim scholars say, when we look in our uh, biographical accounts from our scholars, from Muslim scholars, they say this man used to be in Morocco, in the Maghrib. He, you know, uh, uh, accepted Islam or he pretended to be a Muslim, became skilled in, in Arabic and the Quran. And when he went over there to Egypt, then he reverted back to his Yahudiyyah. And, uh, you know, he was a man who's uh, disliked Islam and whatever. Right? So, the, so the, the, this, these people, and as you know, Abdullah bin Sabah and many of the early uh, Shi'i, Batini movements, um, the, the Ubaidiyya, you know, all of them trace back to these types of people who under the cover of, uh, they use different covers and labels and they are there to stir uh, tribulations amongst the Muslimin and to create ideological movements and currents just to split the people of Islam. So these people are present and we have to be on guard uh, against these people um, and the way to deal with the hypocrites is by way of the pen, the mouth and the pen. To expose them, to expose their lies, to expose their disbelief, to make the affair known to the people and to counter their lies. And this, this is how the people of Nifaq, how they are, how they are addressed, uh, generally speaking. So anyhow, this is Nifaq I'tiqadi, the Nifaq of belief. Then you have the nifaq, which is amali, right? So meaning that this is hypocrisy, but it's only a, a trait or an action of hypocrisy, which does not make someone a disbeliever. And in the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah, uh, these traits have been, have been uh, described uh, from them. Al-kadhib fil-hadith, which is lying when you speak. So when a person speaks, he actually tells lies, to tell lies. Is from the signs of hypocrisy and from the traits of hypocrisy. Likewise, which is to be to betray one's trust. You are entrusted with something and then you betray the trust. Which is when you argue, you behave in an insolent, rude, uh, you know, very, very bad way. In argumentation, like you become angry, you shout, you scream, you lose your temper, you use bad language, you whatever. And so this, this is al-fujur, fil-khusuma, and likewise it includes being dishonest and lying and, and things of that nature. All of that in al-khusuma, from the traits of hypocrisy. And likewise, wal-ghadar, fil-ahad, that when you, are, when you make a, a covenant... You break the covenant. So when there's a treaty and an agreement, you break the covenant. And likewise, uh, well, you, you break the promise. So when you make your promises, you break the promises. You say, I will do such and such. I will meet you at such and such. I will, 
and then you don't, you don't fulfill your promise. Right? So these are five traits which are mentioned in the, in the sunnah. So these traits, they are traits of hypocrisy. And one of the important points connected to this as, as, as we are on this topic, uh, we'll we, we, we remain with this. Um, from the way of the people of Tawheed and Sunnah, because of this knowledge that they take from the Quran and the Sunnah and from the Sahaba and because of the fiqh, because of the comprehension they have gained by taking knowledge in a chain from the Sahaba, right? So what we mean here is that the Quran has come with realities which the companions understood the ma'ani, the realities, the haqa'iq of, of the Quran because they took it from the Messenger of Allah And so therefore, they had a certain understanding to do with iman. What is iman? What is kufr? What is hypocrisy? Who is a true believer? Uh, who is a weak believer? Can iman exist with kufr or branches of kufr? Can there be hypocrisy along with iman? What's the, the Sahaba understood all of these things very, very clearly. Right? Just like they understood al-Qadr and all the intricacies of al-Qadr. Just like they understood you know, all the other affairs of, 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 of knowledge. For that reason, from those scholars who wrote on these issues and clarified these issues is Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah. He wrote a book, Kitabul Iman. It's the seventh volume in his Majmu' Fatawa. All of it is to do with Iman. And in there, uh, the, the, uh, Shaykh al-Islam, he mentions how that it is possible for there to be in a man, there can be a shu'ba from the shu'ab of Iman present alongside a shu'ba or shu'ab, branches of hypocrisy, just like there can also be branches of kufr. And he is a Muslim. He remains a Muslim. right? So he has the asl of Islam. But then there are certain traits or branches of hypocrisy. Meaning certain actions which, which are, are from the actions of hypocrisy. And actions which are the actions of disbelief. And likewise there can be khair and there can be ma'asiyah. All of this can be combined in a single person. Right? This is, this understanding, it, it, it's from the Quran. You find verses of the Quran, you know, and likewise a hadith of the Messenger of Allah. Now, this is very, very important to understand because when it comes to uh, issues of who is a believer, who is not a believer, when do we make takfir? On account of what actions do we expel someone from the, from the fold of Islam? Is it the case that anyone who falls into such an action is automatically a disbeliever? All of these issues here, you will find that the people of the Sunnah have spoken with truth and clarified, clarified the truth and in detail in these issues. And they are opposed in this by either the murji'a on the one, one hand, the murji'a who belittle these affairs of sin and disobedience and the branches of kufr and the branches of hypocrisy 
and they believe that none of this affects a person's iman that so long as a person simply believes in his heart he is complete and perfect in his faith even if he does none of the outward deeds of obedience and he commits every sin right this is a deviation right and conversely on the other side the khawarij who believe that um, you know it's not possible for there to be sin and disobedience or major sin or a branch of kufur or a branch of hypocrisy to be present alongside iman and for a person to remain a muslim so they expel people from islam on the basis of a branch from the branches of kufur a branch from the branches of nifaq a sin a major sin so they expel them from the fold of islam and all of this is a tremendous deviation and uh, that which is with the people of the Sunnah. I'll give you one quick example. There are many examples. I'll give you one example to show how the issue of takfir of a Muslim is something which is very, very dangerous. And it becomes even more severe when you make takfir of a scholar or takfir of a ruler. Because now there are many other implications that follow on from that. Follow on from that. When you accuse scholars of hypocrisy or kufr, then you are cutting the people away from, uh, cutting off the people from these scholars. And if you make takfir of a ruler upon other than Sharia principles, then you are laying down the foundations of uh, harm, turmoil, civil strife in that in, in, in that nation, right? So we are not denying takfir. We're not denying that someone can become a disbeliever, but there are principles and rules that we must follow upon the understanding of the Sunnah. I'll give you an example. A companion by the name of Hatib bin Abi Balta'a radiallahu anhu from the great companions. And what happened is he had family in Mecca. He had properties, possessions, wealth, family in Mecca. And what happened is that in order to win favor with the Quraysh, so that they would not harm his family or his wealth, he revealed some of the secrets of the Messenger of Allah in relation to a battle. So he wrote something to them and sent it to them. However, it was it was apprehended and it was you know discovered. And so what happened is that Hatib so remember this this is like you could you could say that this is kind of like this is treachery you are revealing the secrets in this case of the messenger of Allah to the polytheists of Quraysh on an issue to do with the battle this is this is like there would be treachery okay so some of the companions said you know let, let me strike let, let, let me kill him and strike the neck of this uh, hypocrite or whatever so when the messenger of Allah brought Hatib he said, look, I did not do this out of disbelief. But I did this in order to, you know, to, to, and he explained the reason because he wanted to win favor. It's like a material reason for protection of his wealth or family. It wasn't because, you know, it wasn't in embracing disbelief, right? So what do we have here? We have here an action that we can see outwardly is an action of, of treachery and allying with the people of shirk against the people of, of iman however as the scholars explain 
as the scholars explain, that in this instance, this was not done because he wanted shirk to overwhelm iman and tawheed, right? He's not making mudahara so that he wants to aid the polytheists so that they can become uppermost and become dominant over Islam and the Muslims. That's not what the reason was. It's because he, there's, there's some material gain or to ward off some, some evil, worldly evil. That's why he did what he did. Not out of embracing disbelief, which means that not every action which on the surface and outwardly appears to be disbelief is it actually disbelief and i'll give you a quick example from from your personal let, let, let's give an example from you know something that we can relate to directly and uh, personally um like imagine uh, i'm trying to think of an example but um you know imagine there's you and there's another muslim and there is a non-Muslim, a disbeliever, right? He's a disbeliever. Let's say he's a Hindu, let's say he's whatever it might be. And what you do is you tell him, this, this can apply to you as an individual. It can also apply on the level of a state, of a nation, right? In, in politics, in geopolitics. So let's say you, for example, decide that somehow you can gain some financial material benefit from this non-Muslim who might be a Hindu, might be a Christian, might be a Jew even. And you do that to the detriment of a believer. Of a believer. Right? And your intention is for some worldly benefit or gain. It could be something to do with trade. It could be something to do with the property. It could be something to do with whatever. And you know that the Muslim is going to be harmed by way of that. Okay, now, is this the hypocrisy? Is this treachery? Is this... Kufr which expels you from the fold of Islam. Did you do what you did? Because you wanted the deen of this non-Muslim to prevail and become uppermost over your fellow Muslim? Do you become a disbeliever by way of that? We're not saying this is not a major sin. This is it's a major sin. It's, it's obviously going to harm you. But does this now become disbelief? Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't become disbelief. Disbelief is when the mudahara is when you want and you desire and you want kufr to overwhelm iman that's when it becomes but as for when it's for some other reason it's because of tuqah meaning that you want to protect yourself from something or protect a worldly interest or whatever it might be this is not the disbelief or the hypocrisy or the alliance that expels you from the fold of Islam, right? So this can also happen at the level of a nation state. A nation state might, for example, make a decision that, for example, we might choose to uh, further the interests of, our, of this Muslim nation financially, economically, at the expense of another Muslim nation, right? This is not the alliance or the disbelief or the hypocrisy that expels from the fold of Islam, right? This, would be a, this can be a major sin. It may not be a major sin. In fact, even Islamically speaking, if you have a treaty with a non-Muslim nation of peace, 
And that, this, is in the, this, this is actually in the Quran, a verse in the Quran. And that Muslim nation goes to war with another party of Muslims. Then you can't intervene because you have a treaty with that nation. Right? This, is not, this is not from the treachery and, and you know, selling out the Muslims as you see ignorant people saying. This, this is found in the Quran. Right? And so these people who are very quick to make takfir of the people of the Sunnah or to make takfir of some of the Muslim rulers just because in the world of geopolitics they hold certain positions, it's very easy to interpret these actions now as treachery, you know, uh, selling out uh, Islam and the Muslims. This is the type of rhetoric that you see from the Khawarij who do not have, who have very little understanding of the religion. Right? They, they, they don't, you know, they don't learn the Quran and they don't gain fiqh in the Quran. Just like the Khawarij. And they speak with all this emotional rhetoric and they try to understand geopolitics, you know, with, with, with their reason. And they end up making takfir of, of scholars, of rulers, and of Muslims that, that don't agree with their extremism that they are hypocrites, apostates, they, they are pro-Zionist, they are pro-this, they are pro-that. All of this is from ignorance, it's from jahl, and it only appeals to the ignorant. So we should not be deceived by any of this. Alhamdulillah, our religion is very, very clear. There's no confusion. All of these affairs have been very clearly discussed in detail by the scholars of the Muslims, and particularly by Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah. And because we acknowledge these realities, uh, you know, we, we, we are very clear in these issues about Iman, Kufr, hypocrisy, and um, how these can be combined in an individual and who we might see from him acts of, of sin, disobedience, what enters into, uh, you know, a branch of Kufr, a branch of hypocrisy. And, you know, we know that we take caution when it comes to actually expelling a Muslim uh, from Islam. To the extent that even one of the companions, uh, when, he, when one of the polytheists in a battle, when he overwhelmed him, and he said, I testify none has the right to be worshipped except Allah and Muhammad is the messenger. And he slew, slew him. And you know that this is the situation where a person is, has, has the greatest motive to use Islam as a shield. Like just, a, just as you're about to be killed, and you say, I testify none has the right. Like this is where hypocritically saying the shahada is it's the greatest kind of motive to do that. And in that position, the companion killed him and the messenger of Allah kept on saying to him, you know, did you kill him? When he said this, did you kill him? He kept on saying it and saying it and saying it and saying it. And this became very, very heavy on that companion. So, Takfir is a very, very grave and serious thing. And it is only the ignorant, foolish people who proceed towards it with great boldness. Right? And they have many, many burdens on their shoulders. Anyhow, uh, continuing from that, uh, as, as we said, uh, that hypocrisy has certain traits. And um, the Sheikh goes on to say that you know, people who teach the people their religion that they should explain these realities. So just like we're explaining to you these realities about hypocrisy, there's hypocrisy of belief, there's hypocrisy in action, right? We should make these things clear because there are people of philosophy, 
there are people of ignorance there are there are people of of partisanship and as the sheikh says yutliqun nifaq itlaqan right they basically they make hypocrisy to be something absolute in the way that we that we that the way that we explain and because they don't explain it to the people as has come in the in the book and in the sunnah and in the way that we see that the scholars the leading scholars of the religion and iman the righteous salaf how they explain it to, to the people from the from the companions of the prophet so it's important to be to be aware of these types of things so then the sheikh goes on to summarize and say so this this believer or this sorry this uh, this third category which is the hypocrite has been likened to a basil a basil a rayhana and he said uh, so from this meaning the hypocrite who does recite the quran it appears to be um sorry this is the hypocrite who yes who recites the quran you, you smell the fragrance because you see outwardly but really inwardly it is something which is extremely bitter because you know he manifests to the people that he speaks the truth and he defends the truth right and he calls to the truth and so on and so forth but inwardly he's not like that and so inwardly uh, we see it's very bitter you know in in the core of what's inside that's the third third uh, group and the fourth group is the munafiq alladhi la yaqra'ul quran the hypocrite who does not recite the quran and the example for this person is the hanzala and this is khabithatu ta'am wal ra'iha it is vile well the sheikh it's vile in its uh, smell some some of these uh, do have a smell some don't have a smell it's only the bitter taste and so the hanzala the sheikh wasn't to explain uh, that it's called al uh, hadaj it's like a word for it among the arabs it's like a plant it has these largish uh, plants they are round they can be green and yellow colored it's a bit like the uh, the bitter god a bitter god um, there's also like a citrus version of that there's various types and they are very very bitter and and, and vile uh, to taste and you can't really you know you, you can't handle it on your tongue and swelling because it's, it's, it's too bitter and even the animals the sheikh says do not even eat it and they abandon you know they abandon the uh, this uh, this uh, fruit so anyhow these are the four categories so here what do we have this hypocrite does not recite the quran um, so inwardly it's vile it's very bitter meaning there's nothing of iman inside the hypocrite and outwardly there is no fragrance or there's a vile fragrance that meaning that outwardly there is obviously no benefit coming from this individual unlike the hypocrite who recites the quran because we see apparent fragrance but which is bitter uh, or it's, it can actually be like a bit it can be uh, an evil foul smell as may occur with some of these types of uh, fruits anyhow the sheikh says these are the four categories of people mentioned in this hadith the sheikh then finishes by mentioning um, three like how do we how do we in relation to the quran how do we benefit from the quran and there are three issues that the sheikh will mention in relation to the Quran because obviously the hadith is about the Quran and the approach of the people towards the Quran there are three final things that the Sheikh finishes with first of all 
is in relation to the Quran, we make ta'abud of Allah, we worship Allah by reciting it. And the Messenger of Islam, he said, Man qara'a, uh, whoever recited harfan min kitabillah, a word from the Book of Allah, then he will have a good deed. And a good deed is 10 times its like. And I do not say that Alif Lam Meem is a word, together is a word. But Alif on its own is a letter, Lam on its own is a letter, and Meem on its own is a, is a letter. So for every letter you read, uh, you get one deed which is then multiplied tenfold. So the first thing the Sheikh mentions is obviously this refers to the actual reciting, the actual act of reciting. And uh, the Sheikh says, those who frequently recite the Quran, who are close to Allah, then there is glad tidings for them. Uh, the Sheikh says, we know people who are able to recite a juz every single day and they complete the Quran in 30 days, in a month. And so therefore they complete the, the Quran in a month. So this is just the pure reading of the Quran. Then he said, the second maqsad, what is the second intent or purpose behind all of this is at tadabbur which is reflection. And this is at-tafakkur wa-nadhar, which is to think and reflect and observe. And um, a person has to reflect upon everything he re reads from the book of Allah until what, what is he trying to extract from the book of Allah. So when you, when you read the Quran, what is it that you are trying to take out of the Quran? And so the Shaykh mentions the following things, which is what we look out for, which is what we pay attention to it is al-wa'ad al-wa'ad the promise of Allah so we identify here Allah is making a promise right so you believe in that promise or it is al-wa'id Allah he has made a threat Allah is making a threat for a certain action a threat of punishment a threat of misguidance a threat of removal of protection and support or of blessings right so a threat we when we read we identify this is a threat and we take heed to that threat. Well, Amr, we look for this command. Well, he's a command here. We act upon that command. Wannahi, there's a prohibition here. So we refrain from the prohibition. Well, Khabar, here Allah is informing us about something. So this we have to meet with tasdiq, with belief, to believe and accept it. Well, Qasas, this is a story Allah is mentioning here of the prophets of the nations of the past. And so what lessons do we take from that? Well, jaza, this Allah is mentioning the recompense, the reward. Well, hisab, Allah is mentioning the account. So we we are picking out when we are reading the Quran. We are we are alert to picking out and extracting these things from the Quran. Al wa'ad, wal wa'id, wal amr, wal nahi, wal khabar, wal qasas, wal jaza, wal hisab, and other such things which Allah has put in this book. And which he described in the Quran, uh, Indeed, this Quran guides to that which is most upright. Surah Al Isra. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has criticized those people who do not reflect upon the Quran, they don't make tadabbur. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Do they not reflect upon the Quran? Or are there locks 
upon the hearts. And so at tadabbur reflection, when you reflect and you pick up all of these things, like we said, al-wa'd wal-wa'id to the end, this is what then makes you and it pushes towards action. This is what leads you towards action. And it helps a man to earn this action upon, upon the Qur'an. And likewise, obviously, with the sunnah, he uses the sunnah as well to act upon the Qur'an correctly, to correct his action. And uh, likewise, when he teaches other people, when he's a mu'allim, when he teaches the people, then he relies upon the sunnah as well. So that's the second maqsad behind this hadith. The first is to increase in reciting the Qur'an. The second is to make tadabbur and to know what to extract and take out of the Qur'an as we are reading and what to pay attention to. And the third thing is obviously it's al-amal. Right? To act. And this is the essence. This is the, this is the main thing behind everything. It's not just... It's not the reciting, it's not the tadabbur. That has to conclude and lead to something which is the action. And may Allah grant us tawfiq in acting upon it. And from that is the hadith in which the Messenger of Allah said, يُؤْتَى بِالْقُرْآنِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ وَأَهْلِهِ الَّذِينَ كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ بِهِ تَقُدُمُهُ سُورَةُ الْبَقَرَةِ وَآلُ إِمْرَانِ the Qur'an will be brought on the Day of Judgment and its people who used to act upon it. And it will be preceded or headed by Surah Al-Baqarah and Alu Imran. These two lengthy chapters. And in that hadith, the Messenger of Allah he gave three similitudes for these two chapters of the Qur'an. He said, كَأَنَّهُمَا غَمَامَتَانِ أو ذلتان سودوان بينهما شرق أو كأنهما حزقان من طير سواف تحاجان عن صاحبهما. So he says they will be like um, two dark clouds or two canopies or shades between which is a light or they will be like flocks of birds which are laid in ranks and so they will come in this manner and they will plead or argue in favor of the one who would uh, the sahib the one who would uh, recite them or memorize them or recite them and act upon them they will they will plead for him right so this is for the one who acts the one who acts so after recitation and tadabbur and act this is you earn, you get the intercession of, of the of the of these uh, chapters or these surahs that will come, and Allah knows best how that reality is. These are affairs of the hereafter which we may not uh, comprehend, and so with that the Shaykh concludes his discussion, uh, his final uh, discussion of this um, section that brings us to the end of the book. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Now, if you bear with me. Um, I know we've been on for quite a while, but since this is the very last lesson, there was something outstanding from a previous lesson, um, the hadith of the 99 men. And at the end of that explanation, there was a small section on the conditions of tawbah. 
So purely for the sake of completion, because we have systematically worked from the beginning to the end of this, of this book and covered pretty much everything, uh, just to seal that and to finish that, there was a small outstanding section that we didn't get a chance to finish. So if you have sabr with me, inshallah ta'ala, we'll uh, add this uh, to, to seal and conclude the book. And so this was at the end of the hadith of the 99 men. That was to do with tawbah. Uh, this would be page uh, 250 for those who have the book, page 250 in the book. Uh, so the sheikh very nicely presents to us all of the affairs, the shirut of tawbah, a correct tawbah. I'll quickly summarize them, what the sheikh has mentioned. So first of all, uh, as we see in the hadith, the man was sincere and he abandoned the evil city which he was in, uh, which was the reason and the cause behind him falling into a great amount of sin, murder and the likes. And he followed the advice of the scholar and he left and he died on the way. His tawbah was sincere. He took the action. He wanted khair and he died. So, uh, and eventually he was entered into paradise and forgiven. So the issue here is, what is a genuine tawbah? And what does it comprise of? And so the sheikh summarizes all of it here and he says, uh, first of all, the first condition for tawbah is Islam. Right? Tawbah is Islam. And without Islam, there can be no tawbah. Islam removes everything that is before it. Right? So if he was a disbeliever and he fornicated, he drunk, he gambled, he cheated, he stole, he murdered, he did all sorts of evil no matter what level it reached, Islam will wipe away all of that. Will wipe away all of that. And um, <clears throat> however, if he is a non-Muslim and he's committing these actions, right? So it could be a Yahudi, Nasrani, a Majusi, you know, Mushrik, whatever it might be. And he's committing these, these sins alongside his shirk or his kufr then that tawbah will not be accepted because there is no tawbah without Islam. Right? So the tawbah that is made by the people of kufr and disbelief, uh, that will not be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is obviously another issue, which is the iqamatul hujjah. So yes, as Shaykh Ibn Thim explain, explains, there is amongst the people of disbelief, there can be present today people who have not heard about Islam in a way that establishes the hujjah and removes the excuse. It's possible there are people like that. And Allah will judge them, right? So even though we are speaking here and we are saying that there is no tawbah for a person of kufr, we are speaking here only in, 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 sense, in, in terms of the principle, right? But it could be that there are individuals who haven't had the hujjah established and they might be believers and they might live a righteous life, but the risala did not reach them in a way that they could understand. So they will be put to trial and tested in the hereafter. Right? So that's something specific to those types of people. But in a general sense, there is no tawbah without Islam. And Islam wipes everything that came before it. But if you are upon kufr and you engage in these you know, deeds and you do and you try to make tawbah in the way that you think, like the Christian believes that Jesus died for his sins. This is, this is not, this is not, and just, and just, for you just believing that this now is, removes you from your sins, this is false. This is not true. And even worse than this is the actions of some of those Yahud, 
who basically commit sins for a whole year, then they take a chicken, they take a chicken, they transfer their sins to the chicken, and then they have a certain day of the year which is like a, a, a celebration or a festival. Then they sacrifice the chicken, they, I don't know what they do, they hold it by the head and they swing it around and whatever. And then they believe that their sins have now been transferred and expiated by way of the chicken. Then they give, do they eat the chicken? No, they give it to the goyim, right? They give it to the other nations to eat so that those sins now, you know, go into the, you know. What jahl is this? The Christians are more intelligent, intelligent than you fools. Because they say that a man, a prophet, whom they elevated to, to, to the lordship, they say he died for our sins. And a prophet obviously is, is virtuous and more excellent. But you fools and idiots transfer your sins to a chicken so the chicken can be sacrificed for your sins. What jahl, what ignorance and foolishness is this? And this is what the, some of the Yehud are upon. You are following Ibrahim salam. You are following Yaqub salam. This is the deen of uh, Ishaq and Bani Israel. This is jahl and kathib. And this is how we should look at the, these people and their religion. Right? This is the religion that we are criticizing. Not what genes you are carrying. It's not about your genes. You don't play this anti-Semitism nonsense. It's, it's your creed and your actions that we are criticizing. Just you have people who might criticize Christians or Muslims or Buddhists or whatever in terms of what they believe or what they do this is we're criticizing your actions which have no basis in revelation or in reason right this, this is jahl and uh, foolishness and there are many such things which are, which, which are with the Yahud that when you look and understand and even then when you go deep and you dig and you start looking through the books and you see what who are they sacrificing the chicken to you find that some of, their, some of their scholars say that actually the chicken is being uh, sacrificed to a demon called Azazil or something like this, Azazil or something. So they're actually sacrificing to, 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 to a shaitan, which is shirk with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in order to appease him and to whatever it might be. And so the more you dig under the, under the surface to see what, what, what are these Yahud, what are they upon? It's shirk, it's kufr, it's sihr. All clothed at the top with these lies that they tell that we are people of Tawheed and we were, we, we were chosen. Kadib, kadib. We don't accept this from you. And we encourage uh, the Muslims to uh, speak about these things and to explore these things and to you know, make these affairs known because this is how we undermine this, this deen which is batil by exposing what's what's underneath it this is not the deen of ibrahim salam. you won't be fooling you can't fool the people of, of islam tawheed and the sunnah with these with, with these lies and this is the reality of what what, what they are upon anyhow uh, this is the first thing uh, islam um, the second thing is ikhlas to allah so it has to be sincere and this tawbah cannot be something that just it's on the tongue um, and something that the servant does and says rather it must be genuine and it must be sincere for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, and have a firm resolve um, not to return to it so that, that's like the sincerity that's the second condition or second component the third 
is, is the firm resolve not to return to it. Al-Azam, there must be a firm resolve not to return to it. The third is to actually have a feeling of remorse and nadam, right, for being neglectful and falling into that. That's the fourth. The fifth is to withhold physically from whatever that sin might be. And as part of that, it means he has to leave all of the ways and means that lead him to the sin. This can include things like mixing with evil people, being in evil company, exposing oneself to things or avenues that draw him in that path uh, towards that evil. Right? So all of the ways and means that draw him into, he should uh, shun himself from those affairs as well. That's part and parcel of al-iqla' of holding back from, 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 from the sin. The sixth is that this tawbah has to be before his time comes, his ajal. His ajal, right? Before the time when there is no tawbah. And this is of two types. The first, as it relates to every single individual believer, which is the point of death. The moment that the soul, you know, the, the, the death rattle begins and the soul is being uh, removed, in Allah Indeed, Allah accepts the repentance of the servant so long as the death rattle has not begun. Right? So when, it, when the soul reaches the, the, the collarbone here and it's being expelled, the, the, the servant will then actually see, he will glimpse into the hereafter, he will see you know, his place either in the hellfire or if, if he's not righteous or in paradise if he's, if he's righteous. At that point, it's too late, right? This is for each individual at the point of death. And then as it relates to the whole of mankind, there is a point in time, which is uh, when the sun rises from the west. The messenger was him, he said, Inna Allah yabsutu yadahu bilayli liyatuba musi'un nuhar wa yabsutu yadahu bin nahari liyatuba musi'un layl hatta tatlu'a ash-shams min maghribiha. Indeed, Allah stretches out his hand at the night in order that the one who sins in the daytime may repent. And he stretches out his hand through the day so that the one who sinned through the night may repent until the sun rises from its west. So meaning this is the point, once this event happens and takes place, then there will be no benefiting for anybody if he had not already benefited from his iman right because now now you can actually the, the, the sign is visible to everybody now there's no point in believing because you, you're actually seeing the, re, the, the reality and the truth that there is a lord and creator and so after that point there will be no there will be no repentance so um, the final condition is a condition that relates to what is between the creatures and so this this relates to the rights of the people so far everything that's preceded is the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the previous five or six six this one now is the rights of the people and this is when there's like madhalim there they are like wrongs and um, oppression and injustice that's been done and so a person should resolve these issues with his brother which he's wronged in his in relation to himself or his wealth or anything, if there's qasas, you know, if there's any type of retribution, uh, uh, 
you know, uh, anything like that. And as the Messenger of Allah said, "Man kanat lahu mazlamatun liakhihi min irdhihi aw shay'in falyatahallalahu minhu al-yawm qabla an la yakuna dinarun wala dirham." Whoever has something of oppression or injustice with his brother in relation to his honor or anything, let him resolve it today with him today before a day when there will be no dinar and no dirham you will not be able to run, free yourself with any any wealth and likewise another hadith that the yuqadu lishat al-jalja min al-shat al-qarna right so basically this is like you have the goat who has horns and it wrongs another goat or another, another animal which doesn't have horns, right? So it kind of falls into something of, of oppression. Even among the animals, there is this oppression and transgression. So even there will be justice in relation to that. Even that injustice will not be allowed, right? And that will be dealt with on the, on the day of uh, uh, judgment, <clears throat> which shows the greatness of the issue of dhulm. And indeed... As the Messenger of he said, Inna Allaha la yumli hatta akhadahu lam Indeed, Allah, He leaves, uh, gives respite to the oppressor until when He takes him in, in punishment, He does not give him, it doesn't like give him any respite or delay him, it's, it's done. And, وَكَذَلِكَ أَخْذُ رَبِّكَ إِذَا أَخَذَ الْقُرَى وَهِيَ ظَالِمَةٌ إِنَّ أَخْذَهُ عَلِيمٌ شَدِيدٌ Allah says, Indeed, when he takes, when your Lord takes the township in punishment while it is wrongdoing, indeed the punishment of your Lord is very severe and painful. And um, so all of this, and ittaqul fa inna dhulm dhulumatun yawmul qiyamah, the famous hadith, beware of, of our oppression, because indeed oppression is layers and layers of darkness on the day of judgment. And so all of this shows that part of tawbah, if the sin involves taking or violating the rights of somebody else, then you have to resolve that if you can. If, if you can't, because there are certain situations that maybe you can't, or maybe that if you try to, it will lead to a greater evil. For example, some instances is like backbiting, for example. And if you might reveal to someone that you, you know, um, the scholars explain that you make dua for that person that compensates for your oppressions. You make dua for him in the private uh, for that person you wronged. And there are certain other details that the scholars have given. But dhulm is something that, you know, tawbah is not complete unless you resolve that dhulm in any of the, the ways that it can be resolved. Anyhow, this was just a conclusion of that hadith of the 99 men. And with that, we conclude uh, the entire book. And so we ask Allah to uh, reward uh, Sheikh Obaid. We benefited tremendously from all of these uh, lectures and, and topics. The Sheikh has a beautiful style, a uh, beautiful teaching style uh, in keeping things concise to the point and extracting relevant pertinent benefits. So Alhamdulillah, may Allah reward the Sheikh and may Allah grant us tawfiq uh, in benefiting from this knowledge and overlook our shortcomings. والحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين
Inshallah, the brothers asked a quest, quick question about takfir. Inshallah, we can dedicate a separate uh, lesson, inshallah, to this. Uh, because obviously it's a grave and serious subject. Uh, takfir is an extremely dangerous thing. It's important to know the distinction between iman and kufr. But the, the actual judgment of takfir upon an individual, whoever that might be, is very grave and very, very serious. And the scholars have spoken about this uh, on the basis of a hadith of the Messenger of Allah, whoever accuses his brother of disbelief, then it will fall upon one of them. And inshallah, we can dedicate a separate, this, uh, as we've spoken in great length, and it's, it's late now as well, we don't want to you know, prolong you any further. So we, we'll leave this, inshallah, for an actual specific uh, talk on this topic at some future point insha'Allah ta'ala. Jazakumullah khairan.